This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Vernon Burton, distinguished professor up at Clemson University, and Armin Durfner, who is a longtime and noted civil rights attorney. They have co-authored a book entitled Justice Deferred, Race and the Supreme Court. Vernon and Armand, welcome to the journal. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Walter. Vernon, I pointed out a quotation in the book that, to me, I thought captured the whole uh, theme of what you're trying to say. Would you mind reading that paragraph for us? The history of race and the Supreme Court covers more than legal analysis. It is also full of politics, personalities, and high drama. President Buchanan's efforts to fix the outcome of the Dred Scott case, Booker T. Washington's secret financing of lawsuits challenging various aspects of Jim Crow, Chief Justice Fred Vinson's sudden death, and Earl Warren's appointment in time for the segregation cases, regarding which another justice said that timing indicated the possibility of divine intervention. There are other examples. The former slaveholder who became the greatest champion of his time for African Americans, but not for Chinese people. The Union soldier wounded three times in the Civil War, who wrote strong opinions supporting Jim Crow. The former Klansman, who as a justice was a vigorous civil rights supporter until he was not. And the African American lawyer, who could not seem to lose a Supreme Court case until he became a chief justice and soon found himself on the losing side of almost every major civil rights decision for his last two decades on the court. That really does sum it up, and it's an incredible story. But first of all, just to remind our listeners about you, Vernon, you're a Greenwood County boy. You've been around the world when it comes to teaching history, but you have settled back in South Carolina at Clemson. Uh, and Armand, you have been an attorney for more than a half century, primarily dealing with, with civil rights. So how did the two of you come together to do this book? It goes back about 40 years and to a case from Edgefield County. But it actually started with a Supreme Court case that has been um, a center of, of civil rights issues for, for that period called City of Mobile against Bolden. The Supreme Court there said you could not have an equal protection claim unless you showed there was a discriminatory purpose. You had to find somebody who was behind the law or whatever who had the purpose to discriminate. At that point, the lawyers realized we needed some help. We, we couldn't just do the cases in, in the way we'd been used to. We had to go find somebody. The somebody we had to find was historians. So we actually went and got had a, uh, an all-day seminar, brought a bunch of historians and a bunch of lawyers together, and one of those was the Golden Nugget, which was Vernon Burton. That's what, how he and I got started together. We've been arguing about these issues for 40 years now. And, Walter, it's one of the things I remember at the time when the Supreme Court did this ruling, one of the uh, wits in the New York Times or some paper said, what are we going to do, dig up? the person who wrote this bill and asked him, did you intend to discriminate? Or are you purposely trying to keep blacks from uh, voting? Well, we'll be raiding all the graveyards. And of course, as you know so well, we as historians are trained to deal with the idea of motivation and purpose behind particularly politicians or other actors, the things they do, why they did it. And this was involving an Edgefield County case. And Correct. what was that case? Uh, it was a case called McCain against Librand, uh, and it had to do with the, the, the districting, the way the districts were drawn in Edgefield County. And even though there was a majority black population there, the districts had been drawn for years to make sure that white people won all the seats. And we actually had to win that case three times before finally we won it in the Supreme Court. And as a result— 
the districts became such that people of all colors in Edgefield County could have a shot at being represented on the county council. And the county council actually elected the plaintiff, Tom McCain, Tom McCain to be the then county commissioner. And uh, it, was, it, it was interesting, the whole development of what happened. It's interesting. Edgefield County was this, was the scene of this uh, uh, case because, of course, Edgefield County, the home of ten South Carolina governors, the home of Strom Thurmond, the home of uh, of Ben Tillman. It was. It seems fitting in retrospect that Edgefield County was the center of this case of a lot of modern Supreme Court doctrine and of our friendship. And actually, if you went back to the original boundaries of Old Edgefield uh, prior to the Civil War, it would have included a lot, a lot more of the same kind of the folks and the issues that that you're dealing with. It was at one time the largest county in the right. state, mm-hmm. uh, and then it got carved up. We've done that armored over over time. Right. Uh, we've actually got two counties now in South Carolina after the last census who do not who have a population of less than 10,000 which means they could not be created as a county <laughs> if they wanted to now. And I have asked two former justices of the state supreme court, how does this work? And they said you can't decountify a county. <laughs> <laughs> decountify. <laughs> Edgefield County was also the place where the best friend of Charleston, which was the first passenger train, used to go to. It went from Charleston to Hamburg, which is now called North Augusta. Uh, and that was a train that um, uh, carried Charlestonians over to Edgefield County and back. Well, and of course, at the time, it was the longest railroad uh, in the country. They, they used to have a, a replica of that train that would t- take a ride in Charleston up about a mile once a year. And I rode that train wow. since I was on that best friend of Charleston. Well, we'll get back to the cases. But <laughs> one more thing about the best friend of Charleston, the Charleston and Hamburg Railroad, it was to improve the port of Charleston. The problem was that Charlestonians would not let the train come within the city limits. <laughs> so that meant that, you, yes, you could bring all the cotton down from the upcountry, but it stopped. It meant to, it had to be put onto wagons before it was hauled to the court. So it basically, de- uh, to the port, excuse me. So it basically defeated the purpose of uh, <laughs> uh, that. But it did It did provide transportation to the backcountry. And there are, you know, just na- next to Edgefield, you've got Pendleton, which became a summer colony right. for a lot of of prominent Charlestonians. And, and, and the home of John C. Calhoun and Clemson University now. Yeah. Pretty much. All right. Okay, let's let's get back to the book. But I, <laughs> Sorry. But but I, I think it's wonderful that this 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 attorney from up east, up northeast has ridden the best friend of Charleston. I mean that <laughs> Okay. Uh, so this is how you had your initial get together. Uh, so Vernon, did you become a regular expert witness for Armand over the years? Yeah, we've worked together in a lot of cases and uh uh, for minority plaintiffs mm-hmm. on voting rights and, and maybe some discrimination cases. I can't remember them all, but we've done quite a few and uh, often consulted with him when I was working for other uh, people like the NACPLDF or the Brennan Center or, or MALDEF or someone. I'm just amazed that your your academic output is prodigious. I mean, you're always, you know, it's another year Vernon's got another book out almost. Uh, but this, there's not a dull moment in it. Um, there's, there's so many vignettes that we could talk about that are interesting, some sad, some funny, but all of very serious matters. And in fact, history's not passed. What's the legal basis that's being used against the people who invaded the Capitol on January the 6th, 2020? Isn't that a Reconstruction era statute? It's the Ku Klux Klan Act. And uh, it was also the same act that was used against those who, um, during the campaign in Texas, surrounded the bus and tried to harass people. So it's a—and the story of the Ku Klux Klan Act, and Armand might want to chime in here, has been very interested at how it's sort of come back uh, into use. It was passed in 1871, and it's one of its early uses was a, a series of prosecutions in South Carolina mm-hmm. that ran the Klan, that drove the Klan out of the state. Uh, they had some convictions, not a whole lot, but the fear was so much that 
the Klansmen just left the state. Some of them went to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the initial use of the Ku Klux Klan Act. It has, um, uh, as, as you've said, it, it's the basis for the prosecutions in, uh, on the Capitol invasion. It is also the basis for suits against police or other law enforcement officers when police violate the constitutional rights of people, as um, a lot of the recent headline incidents are, when they are prosecuted in federal court by the federal government or when they are sued in federal court, those are cases under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. I know about the act, but I thought it only dealt with uh, domestic insurrection. How did the police get involved in Okay. <laughs> Section 1 of the 1871 Act says that um, any person who is, whose constitutional rights are violated by someone acting under, in the name of, the sta- of a state has a lawsuit against that person. So if a policeman uh, beats you up, you can bring a suit in federal court under Section 1 of the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, which is now commonly known. This is a pretty familiar term. It's called a Section 1983 lawsuit, and that's because that's the section number in the federal code. In addition, if the federal government decides to prosecute a policeman, for example, for beating up or killing somebody, that is also a suit under the Ku Klux Klan Act. It's under Section 2 of the Ku Klux Klan Act. So the Ku Klux Klan Act has just a whole lot of different um, sections. It also authorized the president, which U.S. Grant used this, to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in the case of, as you say, a domestic uh, insurrection. And, and Vernon, that was done in a number of counties in South Carolina. York Um, County being one of the central ones. Union County. Edgeville. You know, I, I, I always tell people, South Carolina is at the center of, of the world. Most, most history begins here. And here we're talking about an 1871 act, which the action of the Klan in South Carolina was one of the real reasons that it was passed by Congress. Uh, and it's still, in, it's still in use today. And Vernon, when I said that, I saw you tapping the book because you're going to say South Carolina's. It's central. And, you know, even though South Carolina has been my laboratory, has been yours, Walter, I was really surprised what a role South Carolina has played if you want to understand the history of race and the Supreme Court. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. You talked about writing. You know, most of my academic career beginning in 1980, I bemoaned the fact that, you know, during the daytime I was writing about, say, the Civil War or Reconstruction in South Carolina and thinking, here are these hundred pages report that are sitting in some law clerk's office that no one will ever see because I'm writing these reports for judges or law clerks and what am I doing this? It's, it's hopefully some graduate student doing a PhD. One day we'll find my report. Lo and behold, I had no idea that Armin would ask me one day, would you like to join me in a book I've been thinking about? So I finally got to use all those hundreds of reports that are or those I could find, those before before the computer where they were on the on you had some copy left that I was able to use some of it in these very describing these cases. Well those things that haven't haven't been used, I would hope that you've made provision for your papers to either go to your alma mater at Furman uh, or to Clemson or the Historical yeah. Society so that uh, future scholars will have access to them. Because uh, I know you put things down paper. Your work is not out in the ether somewhere and, and lost forever. No. Uh, so um, it was... It was uh, let me put a plug in for the Avery Research Center at the College of Charleston, okay. which is where my papers mostly are. Okay, and that and that is how I found out, in fact, that I went over to do some research and discovered there were my papers because they have my letters with Armin, which deal with a good bit of this. I had no idea that there was a collection of papers that were mine in Armin's papers. All right, Armin, how did you make that decision to put your papers in Charleston at the uh, college? Well, I've been here in Charleston for now, as you said, most about fifty years, and. 
um, when I started looking for places that would be interested and places that would be worthwhile, uh, the Avery Research Center had just really been reinstated. You remember it was a school founded right after the Civil War by the American Missionary Association, and it uh, grew into a, a, a well-known school uh, that had many African-American graduates. Uh, eventually, it, uh, it, it no longer exists as a school, but it's been revived by the state and the College of Charleston as a, a research institute, and that just seemed like the perfect place for the papers. All right, gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Vernon Burton and Armand Durfner about their book, Justice Deferred, Race, and the Supreme Court. Let's talk about the Supreme Court and the issue of race over time and then get into some of these fascinating vignettes. What was the first case the court dealt with in terms of race? The f- well, w- there, were, there were a number of earlier early cases about the slave trade, but one of the earliest cases, ironically, that we talk about is a case involving American Indians, Native Americans. Uh, the Cherokees, in about 1830, Congress passed the uh, Indian Removal Act. And that was what started the Trail of Tears. And so we talk about several cases involving uh, Native Americans. After that, we move very quickly to a case that a lot of people have seen the movie on, uh, and that is the Amistad case, which the court was very strong in favor of um, freedom and justice. And it was unfortunately the last, just about the last good case on race for 70 years. Um, so that was the beginning. One of the things that we have tried to do is tell the story of race in the United States, actually beginning before there is a United States, and we use Supreme Court as a lens to do that. And one of the amazing things for someone who had actually written a little internal pamphlet at the University of Illinois where I was for 34 years on modern American history I, and one on the constitutional history. I start out and say, everybody loves the Constitution. Everybody loves Supreme Court and all this. We've always thought of the Supreme Court as, as sort of pushing for equality and rights. And one of the things we learned is that there was a rare sort of beginning in the 30 with one of my new heroes that we discovered uh, in doing this research, this, the stodgy corporate lawyer. Uh, Charles Evan Hughes is actually a champion of, of race relations. And one of the things I loved about his story, for the first time when South Carolina had said, well, these laws are neutral and so they can't be said to discriminate, or we decided this in Alabama, Hughes said for the first time, let's look at the evidence, which historians love, of course, and then came to different conclusions. But what we discover is that short period of time has the court really done more good than harm in terms of how they ruled on race relations? And in fact, one of the things that gives us some optimism when we get depressed about where things are now is the idea that we have had 12 generations in which the laws and the courts have ruled in ways that, first of all, define race, made it a legal thing that for 12 generations hurt particularly a group of people. And we've only had two generations where we've started to correct those things. So if you put it in the long term, we've made a lot of progress in two generations from where we had to be before. But I was not really aware of the complicity, particularly of the Supreme Court, in defining what race was, defining what white and black people could and could not do together. One of the things that people do not understand about South Carolina is that prior to 1865, there was no definition of race. Right. It was up to the local community whether a person was considered uh, a person of color or Caucasian. Uh, and there's the famous case of Gideon Gibson over in the, in the PD. Uh, as Henry Lawrence said, he was whiter than any Huguenot in the state of South Carolina, uh, but he was a person of color. And we have cases where communities accepted individuals as white. And that was, there were several cases uh, John Belton O'Neill ruled on. Right. It was up to the community. The state had no de- definition until after 
emancipation. And one of the fun things I, I like to do, of course, is, and I don't want to run on too long on this, but, you know, the definition by the court of what is white. So in uh, 1922, in a famous case, uh, Mr. Ozawa, who was Japanese, had been a long-time resident of the United States, thought they had changed the naturalization laws. At first, you know, the the, the laws just dealt with uh, African Americans could not be citizens and something about Native Americans. But then when the court looked at it, they said, well, really, you know, the wording's a little confusing, but the law was such that white remained a requirement. But the court then had to go on and say, well, it's not merely color because some, exactly what you're talking about, Walter, white people had darker skin than some non-white people. So the justice decided that white meant Caucasian. And so since Mr. Ozawa, Japanese, was not Caucasian, he couldn't apply or was not eligible for citizenship. The very next year, then, Mr. Thine, whose ancestor went back to the Caucasus Mountains of Europe. In other words, he's a real Caucasian, uh, but he's from Indian, had brown skin. So the court tried for a while to provide some rationale for his decision, but finally decided that Caucasian really meant white. And then one other quick thing, because there, the Virginia judge who convicted Richard and Mildred Loving of what he called unlawful missignation, a word that was used regularly in mm-hmm. South Carolina, said, and I quote, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, melee, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. He therefore ruled that God did not intend for the races to mix. And literally, the Supreme Court has dealt with issues involving all these groups of people, and so does our book, Justice Deferred from the 17th Century (laughs) through really into 2021. And, uh, of course, that loving case, which goes Supreme Court, uh, which says that a white person and black person couldn't be married, and it was in states beyond the South. But it also was the first one that sort of came up with our idea of strict scrutiny, which is so important in what, cases what, what about happened, race. What happened in that case? Uh, in, in the Loving case, the, um, the Supreme Court said it, it is unconstitutional to have a law that's based just on race. And it said also that if, a, if, a, if you have a law that's based on race, it will almost always be held unconstitutional under what, as uh, Vernon describes, the rule of strict scrutiny. Ironically, that came out of, it originally started in the Japanese internment cases, which was a, uh, a series of cases in the 1940s, uh, which is probably one of the most shameful uh, episodes in Supreme Court history. At the same time that the Supreme Court was advancing uh, the rights of African Americans, uh, they were upholding the uh, decision to take 100,000 people of Japanese descent and two-thirds of them were Americans and move them out of the West Coast and move them inland for the duration of the war. And the, I, one of the ironic things about that that we talk about in in the book is that one of the most vigorous supporters of the Japanese internment was the the attorney general of California. It was a fellow whose name was Earl Warren. Uh, Now, Earl Warren, interestingly enough, later in life uh, said he regretted his support for the Japanese internment. Uh, Hugo Black, who wrote the opinion saying it was okay to intern the Japanese, never backed off. He never said he ever regretted that decision. All right, let's talk about Hugo Black. He's an inter- an interesting character, U.S. senator from Alabama, a member of the Klan, and yet over time he becomes, whatever the term, progressive liberal on the, the issue of race. One of the leading opponents of segregation. Do we have papers? Do we have any idea why he why he chose to change? His stand certainly was not popular back home in Alabama. He, when you say change, you mean change again? Because uh, Hugo Black ran. Uh, I mean, he, he was a trial lawyer in uh, in early days. Uh, he was a, a, a typical Alabamian. Uh, although he, as a criminal defense lawyer, he represented a lot of African Americans. He also represented white races. Um, then he became a U.S. senator, was one of FDR's 
biggest champions. He supported FDR's plan to pack the court in the 1930s. Um, when he, and he, when he went on, uh, FDR put him on partly to basically shame the Senate and have, have them have to approve such a liberal guy. And he was the leader of the anti-segregation forces. He was very unpopular in Alabama. And then somehow in the 1960s, with the rise of the civil rights movement, he turned around and he not only opposed the, uh, the sit-ins, but began opposing many, many of the civil rights ventures. He opposed um, the Voting Rights Act because it, he thought it picked on the South. He became, ironically, the person who nowadays is uh, so highly regarded by people who call themselves conservatives because they said Hugo was really one of us. So he is the great enigma and People argue back and forth. There are law review articles and other books written all the time about, well, was his change this or was it that? Uh, he remains the big enigma. We've tried to bring that out in the book in all its different aspects. But you don't want to not give him credit for standing up for good things. Absolutely. Initially, he Absolutely. really, it was a challenge. He was the... Uh, he was the uncle of uh, one of my Ph.D. advisors' wife, and uh, we talked a lot about Uncle Hugo and the families, and the other side of the family was the Durr's. And Virginia who, Durr, that's yes. That's right, Virginia yeah. Durr. And so they were very, very progressive. They were all New Dealers. Yes. And that's part of where he came out of. And it's something that I'd love to talk some other time with you about, Walter. I think it's changed. there was a real element of class in the South at that time. Oh. And, and it drove in South Carolina and Alabama. And this is my theory, and I haven't really run it out with Armand. He'll probably, as usual, puncture my balloon. But uh, I, I think there was that going on about the crisis of the New Deal and how you need it. And, and that people were hurting, and that included black and white, and he becomes a champion for black people. I do think there was always that idea that's still a tough one in America, and that is the rule of law, and do you break the law as sit-ins did, that was the law, or as Martin Luther King Jr. did, to change the law. to move. So there's that old balance between law and order. And then again, his father ran a store. We have a quote about Pappy ran a store and he ought to have the right to say who he served and didn't serve. That is but he property also, he, rights. But there was, but that comes later. But during an earlier period, he is a real champion for black, particularly African-American and other minority rights. But he also, he also, uh, took up the notion uh, that, for example, uh, Reconstruction was a time of Yankee invasion of good folks. And I remember when I argued my first case in the Supreme Court, he was still on the court. The court was Earl Warren and Hugo Black and Thurgood Marshall and all those great justices. And uh, it was interesting because he was the one person who was uh, opposed to the Voting Rights Act in that case. And so I, I'm argue, I was arguing on some issues with other justices, but very much other issues with Hugo Black. There's one other point I want to uh, bring up. In the book, there's almost, an, almost like a, an adventure story. Um, we talk in, about when the sit-in cases were in the Supreme Court, uh, they came within days or minutes of saying that the sit-ins were illegal, that all the people who were sitting in were could be arrested, could be convicted. And it's po quite possible if the Supreme Court had issued that decision, which Hugo Black had written and was ready to come down on a certain Monday, it's possible that if they had done that, we would not have the Civil Rights Act because Congress at that point was in the filibuster and the Southerners who were filibustering could have been encouraged by Black's opinion to kill the C Civil Rights Act. As it happened, they had a conference on Friday, and when they went into the conference, that was the opinion. It was coming down on Monday, and Tom Clark, who was another justice from Texas with Mississippi roots, went up to Hugo and said, Hugo, I've changed my mind. 
And those few minutes really changed history as frankly, our book shows has been, I think, been changed in a lot of ways by uh, sudden events that were unpredictable. Well, and see, that's a story that most people don't know. We've mentioned Earl Warren earlier. How did he almost get removed from the court? <laughs> or, or uh, first of all, he was, a, he was Attorney General of California, and uh, Eisenhower appointed him to the bench, right? right. Correct. And Eisenhower had promised that appointment. He really didn't want it to be the Supreme Court. Uh, Chief Justice, Justice, uh, and he couldn't seem to sort of back out of it, but uh, that was a backstory. He was a recess appointment initially. Under the law, under the the Constitution allows a president to make a recess appointment when the Senate is out of session, Um, and that happens all the time. It rarely happens with justices. It hasn't happened in many years since Eisenhower. It used to happen sometimes. It may not even be in compliance with the Constitution. Um, A recess appointment only lasts till the end of the session. And if the person is not confirmed by the Senate, then that that appointment ends. And in those days, Earl Warren was appointed to the court in September because Fred Vinson had suddenly had a heart attack. Um, Senate in those days only sat for a short time, sort of like the South Carolina General Assembly. They didn't have these all-year sessions the way we do now. And so Eisenhower put Earl Warren on the court as a recess appointment, and his appointment would have ended if he didn't get confirmed. Well, the, the, his appointment dragged on for months and months for reasons, uh, sort of complicated reasons, and he was confirmed about six weeks before the Brown versus Board of Education decision came down. If he had not been confirmed when Brown came down, there is no way on God's green earth that he would have been confirmed. The Southerners would have filibustered his nomination from then till kingdom come. And so is those the timing of that that allowed him to keep his seat when otherwise there might not have been a Warren court at all. Eleanor Clift uh, faulted President Obama for not trying a recess appointment of Merrick Garland. I don't think it's constitutional. Arm and I disagree a little (laughs) bit on this. If if it's happened, I think there's still a chance. One of the vignettes, there's a case where a woman must find $50 because the officials in a court addressed her by her name and did not use a courtesy title. They call her by her first name, Mary. They just said Mary, not even her last name. Yeah, and, and those of us who grew up in the South know how common that was. There was a newspaper reporter who was fired in the Columbia paper for using Mr. and Mrs. Uh, where, where was this case coming from? Town. This comes from Birmingham, Alabama, and she's working with CORE, and she is from Iowa. Is that right? Sioux City. Sioux City. Uh, I'm sorry, Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And she's on the stand. She's part of the sit-ins and arrested. And the uh, prosecuting attorney says, well, Mary. And she says, my name is Miss Mary 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 Hamilton. Hamilton. And he says, okay, Mary. Well, I was about to ask, and it goes back and forth. She refuses. And that seems like a simple thing. But that was one of those things in the South that went with segregation to make both white and black understand that black people were not equal to white and they were in fear. So the Supreme, and she's convicted, Supreme Court hardly, it takes very few cases. But as Armin has said, this was an amazing thing. It took a case for $50. And it said, go ahead, Armin. Yeah, uh, uh, it showed how the Supreme Court really understood what was going on. All right, gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Vernon Burton and Armand Durfner about their book, Justice Deferred, Race, and the Supreme Court. Earlier we were talking about, you you know, race is a construct. What, who is black? Who is white? Uh, of course, one of the most famous cases involving race is Plessy v. Ferguson, where the plaintiff was as white as anybody in the room. And he only because he said he was African-American that he got tossed off the streetcar. And of course— you, you actually—you pointed out earlier that how race is a construct. Um, Homer Plessy would have been white in Virginia, black in North Carolina, black in Louisiana, white in Ohio, 
uh, every state had a different idea of who was white and who was black. And a lot of people don't realize that the railroads were on his side. They wanted not to have to run a separate train or a car for blacks and a separate car for whites. And that's a sort of new development that we've discovered. And actually, the the news and courier in Charleston had no no problem with African Americans riding the car, riding the first class cars. They were more concerned about class. Yes, uh-huh. they would. They the News and Courier editorialized in the early 1890s. They would have no problem with persons of color who paid first class tickets sitting there. They didn't want rowdy rednecks from the up country. <laughs> And I, I'm not sure what term they used, but it was a very it was a pejorative. Yeah. Uh, low class whites. Mm-hmm sitting in the car just because they were white. Of course, they changed their tune in 10 years yeah, uh, yeah. because that editorial mocked what was happening. Do you want to have separate Bibles in court? So that, you know, uh, <laughs> Little did they know. And then within 10 years, that was the, that was the case. And they had separate Bibles in court. And they had separate <laughs> Bibles. You mentioned one thing earlier about the course of the Supreme Court, and it's sort of interesting. Um, as we looked at the long sweep, there's a continuum, and uh, we think of the Supreme Court, and we say this in the introduction, as the institution that ended segregation, protects the right to vote, fair trials, and free free speech, etc. But that comes from a very short period, from about the 1930s to about the 1970s. Before that time, whether it was before the Civil War or even after the Civil War, and we still and we now had the Equal Protection Clause and the Fourteenth Amendment etc., the court was just awful on issues of slavery. Um, It was in the period of the 30s through the 70s, it became increasingly better to the point where it ended segregation, uh, ended official Jim Crow. And then, frankly, since the 1970s, it's been sort of going backward again to the point where now the backward thrust is just um, extraordinarily great. Can I, can really I going add to back that, to the 1870s in many ways? Can I add to that, though, uh, a sort of South Carolina story that really touched me? And this is one of those contingencies uh, situation. You know, the great Thurgood Marshall, who we said hardly ever lost a Supreme Court case against all odds, then he gets on the court and he's almost always on the losing side. But when Thurgood Marshall, both for the federal judgeship that he was appointed to and then when he is appointed as a Supreme Court justice, Strom Thurmond is on the Judiciary Committee and he just gives him a uh, – as only Strom could because he's very smart. He knows the Constitution. But you, are you a communist? Don't you work with communist or et cetera? It was just humiliating. He was just angry. Well, his best friend is William Brennan. 1980, you have, of course, the Reagan Revolution. Ted Kennedy had been chair of the Judiciary Committee. Brennan comes out. They're both in their robes. He sees, he sees Thurgood Marshall. He rushes up to his friend. Is it true? Can it be true? Is it really true that Strom Thurmond is now chair of the Judiciary Committee? And it's just a poignant scene that sometimes I break up and cry when I talk about it. Literally, Brennan is a very small, fragile, little person in stature, great in heart and brain, but but a small individual physically. And Thurgood Marshall's a giant of a man, and he puts his arm around Brennan. The two of them turn in their robes and march back to their chambers, and it's, it's for me, sort of a symbol of these— Two warriors for justice going into their last battle against all odds. And then the contingency comes in this. They asked Thurgood Marshall when he's going to retire. He said he expected to live to be, was it 101, Herman? 120. 120. And he said, I expect to be shot in bed by an angry husband, a jealous husband. (laughs) But after the first Iraq war with George Bush, he's very ill. His best friend, Brennan, has left the court. And uh, he's not well, but a lot of justices stayed on in worse conditions. He actually sees no way that a Democrat can win. They don't see Ross Perot coming. The first George Bush ratings are way up after the invasion with Colin Powell and the pullback. 
And so he resigns. That allows, instead of uh, if he'd have stayed on, of course, Bill Clinton would have been able to have made that appointment. But instead, they appoint Clarence Thomas. Go just a few years later, the decision on the election between Al Gore and the George Bush II, that would have had a different outcome, which would mean different people appointing different people, and you just get the idea of where the Supreme Court would be, all because he resigned really before he had to, but again, in bad health. But that shows how history can play these tricks on people. They don't understand. Well, that's one of those what-ifs that you uh, that, that you always wonder about. Now, in your book, you talk about the Dred Scott decision is that Buchanan was going to fix that. I didn't think Buchanan could fi- <laughs> President Buchanan could fix anything. <laughs> he tried. He, he had he, he. One of his best friends was Justice Robert Greer, who was from Pennsylvania, and of course, most of the justices were Democrats. Majority were slaveholders. Buchanan was very much pro-slavery in the South. Uh, he wanted, was very protective of the South, like other Democrats. So he, he knew all along that the decision was going to come out against Dred Scott. He actually went to his inauguration. The decision was about to come down, had not been come down. And he said, seemingly not unaware, not aware of anything, he said, you know, whatever the decision is, I'll stick by it. I'll go with that decision. That's what we all ought to do. Well, he, in fact, knew what the decision was going to be, and it was going to be against Dred Scott, which it came down two days later. But to add something, Buchanan didn't want it to be just a southern against northern decision. So he talked to his friend Robert Greer, Justice Greer, and said, Justice Greer, I know you were going to dis- you were going to uh, vote against Dred Scott on some narrower issue and not take up all these things that Tawney's talking about about how slavery is beyond the power of the of Congress. But can't you just join them? And so Greer went ahead and, in his opinion, which is a short opinion, says, "I agree with everything that Tawney says." And that was what Buchanan did to, so that he could say, well, it's not just a Southern decision. It's a decision across the board from the Supreme Court. And, and, and let, let's briefly remind our listeners what the Dred Scott decision was all about. Dred Scott was a, was a slave who lived in Missouri but had been carried to Illinois, which was a free state, and to part of the territory that was covered by the Missouri Compromise and was supposed to be free. So, and the law in all the states, south and north, was that if a slave was taken to a free uh, territory and stayed there legally, or that is with the permission of the, of the owner for a, a significant period of time, that slave would become free. The ru- rule was once free, always free. When Scott came back to Missouri... He was still a slave, but he thought he ought to be free, which the laws of all the states uh, would have said yes. He went to court, but by that time, the agitation between the states had grown. So there were eight cases from Missouri on that very issue. All of them said he should be free. And he was, that's what the lower court ruled. By the time it got to the Supreme Court of Missouri, the chief chief justice writing the opinion said, times are not as they were when those earlier cases were decided, and we are changing the rule. And so that said, Scott was still a slave. It went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, all the Southerners plus Justice Greer, uh, said, Um, a number of things. They said, first of all, a slave cannot sue. A slave cannot be a U.S. citizen, no matter if he's free or his parents were free or he was born free. No black person of any degree can be a U.S. citizen, can have any of the privileges of of U.S. citizens. And on top of that, um, Congress has no power to outlaw slaves in any of the territories or anywhere else. Because slave, slaves, uh, owning a slave is a property right. Congress cannot interfere with property rights. It was just across the board. The Supreme Court decided every issue you could imagine and others beside. And the heart of the decision, of course, is a, a, a statement that is so well known today uh, and so reviled. And that is uh, the, the entire Negro race was a race that was so 
quote, degraded, that's the word they used, that they had no rights that a white person was bound to comply with. And that statement has gone down in history, but sort of every other aspect of the case uh, brought mischief, including an earlier civil war, which we probably would have had at some point anyway. But so as a result, the Dred Scott case has gone down as the most reviled case. And now everybody loves to say, well, that case was bad, but maybe other cases aren't so bad, even when they are. But the interesting thing, well, there are several interesting, first of all, they did not have to do that. The case could have just been ended with a black person has no right to sue, but they wanted to make a statement uh, otherwise. And, of course, what Tony and and Buchanan thought was this would end the controversies instead of just the opposite, where it forced someone like Lincoln to say, you know, we have to draw the line. They're now saying there'll be slavery uh, in Illinois. And so it had the opposite effect. And one other thing, Armand didn't let me put this in the book, but when they said that about things have changed, that echoes almost exactly what Judge Roberts said in Shelby County. He said in the earlier case on that basis, things are not as they were. And then we just had the Bronovich case in voting in uh, Arizona, which we actually, something historians probably shouldn't do, we predicted that case. It hadn't even been decided. But Judge Alito just said things are not as they were at the time of the Newell Voting Rights Act in 1982. So there's an echo through of justifications for what seems like to me decisions that go, in fact, against what the precedent and the laws have been before. The Dred Scott case came on on the heels of everything else in the, the yeah. 1850s, uh, bleeding Kansas. Preston Brooks. And, and, and actually, you know. 1850s just exploded. While he was still alive, John C. Calhoun was said, slavery follows the flag. And that was exactly what Dred Scott, the, the decision said. Right, uh, right. It was property rights. Exactly. And that goes back to Hugo Black as well. I mean, there is that tension in American history, thought, and legal arguments, I think. We also point out that John C. Calhoun was against the Mexican War, um, and mainly because it would bring in people of another color. And he said, this is a white man's government. Yes. Actually, it wasn't just Calhoun. Most of his followers in South Carolina were not very excited about going to war with, with Mexico. Until uh, the war started. Until the war started. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then the men of the Palmetto Regiment paid the price. Gentlemen, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. How do you want to wind up your stories today? Last words for our listeners. Armand, why don't we go with you first? I want to pick up on something you said about how readable this book is. Uh, I mean, this could, book could not have been written by a historian alone. It could not have been written by a lawyer or law professor alone. Um, it took the both of us, but we are both really proud of the fact that it is readable, that it is approachable. And for that, I'll give our wives uh, the benefit because they insisted that we write this book in the English language. Well, that's the only reason that that you all on the show, if this if this sounded like a legal treatise, uh, I'm sorry, folks, I would not have invited you all to be on the show. <laughs> Vernon? Well, I'm thinking, I think the American history of race is still being written today. Whether it's affirmative action or voting rights or anything else, I really believe that the and know the present grows out of the past. And while it's not predictive where we are and how we got there, certainly shapes our future. I think that Armin and I forcefully wrestle with issues, with the consequences of history a moral compass, trying to examine jurisprudence that's far-reaching and long-lasting, a lot of which was unjustified, and tried to suggest, after some depressing stories, that there's still hope today, that there are examples of hope, of, of not only courage, but ways to accomplish things in very difficult times. We've been in difficult times with the court before, and people have found ways to get things done, to move us more toward those ideals, our better angels, as Lincoln called them, those those ideals that are laid out in the Declaration of Independence. 
We will prevail. We're not sure we can explain why after so much of a depressing story is, is a lot of this book, but we do believe we will prevail. When you say we will prevail. The American people. The American yeah. people. I think there are more of us who believe in those ideals of what our country has struggled with to come to, to become more inclusive. And then there's the hope, Walter, of our children. I just think the young people of America are determined that they're not going to have unfairness and injustice. They do not believe that other people, no matter what, again, race is not a real thing, color, race, whatever you might want to call it, ethnicity, should be discriminated against. All right. I want to thank both of you, Vernon Burton. I don't even remember how many times you've been on the show. It's always such a pleasure, Walt, and I learn so much from you every time. Well, it's because, as I said, you're always producing something that's that's worth discussing. And Armand Durfner, it's nice to meet you and to have you on the show. And I want to thank you all for being here today. The authors of Justice Deferred, Race and the Supreme Court. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with me today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It's always a pleasure to have Vernon Burton back on the show, and I enjoyed having Armin Durfner as well. During the course of our conversation in discussing the United States Supreme Court and the issue of race, it's amazing the number of times that South Carolina came to the fore. And whether you're dealing with the slave codes from the colonial period or with the segregation cases in the 1950s, South Carolina, in its legal affairs over time, has played a significant role, no matter what its position, in affecting the course of history in the United States. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.